this week we're kind of starting a new series. I'm excited about it. Um, we're titling it Designed to Worship. And it's not really new because we're actually kind of filling in the blanks of, of the last series. Uh, we just finished four weeks on studying kind of a master class on prayer, uh, studying the, the eight prayers that the gospel writers uh, gave us, recorded from Jesus. Uh, we know Jesus prayed more than that, but for some reason the gospel writers chose eight prayers to kind of record for us. And for the last four weeks, we've gone through those. We've gone through those eight prayers, kind of learning by example from Jesus, looking at how he prayed so that we can get some advice on how we could pray. And and as we've been doing that, we've been kind of using the Lord's Prayer as a bit of an outline of the way he taught us to pray. So we've been using, looking at the way he taught us to pray along with the way that he prayed um, to kind of put together um, really a prayer life. And so we've been building in over the last four weeks also uh, this ancient practice of praying the daily offices. So at, uh, at 9 in the morning and noon and 3 and 6 and 9, we've been setting an alarm on our phone, uh, just something to remind us to take, man, 60 seconds, not long, just to pray and kind of reach out to God and bring God in that moment and just kind of refocus our awareness back on God. And then throughout the series, we kind of started to shape that um, using the Lord's Prayer as an outline. So uh, at 9 in the morning, we've been praying an up, what we call an upward prayer, just directly to God about God, not asking for anything. It's just this moment to talk to God about who God is. And then at noon, we pray an outward prayer where the focus of the prayer is stuff, things that are out there that we want God to give us, healing, wisdom, you know, more of his presence, financial help, just outward things that the focus of the prayer are things that are out there that we need. And then at three, we've been praying another upward prayer. And then at six, we've been praying an inward prayer. These are the prayers where we, we, uh, we go inward to, to talk to God. The, the most common metaphor that the scripture gives us for the kind of where God resides is in the heart of humanity in the New Testament, that God lives within us. And so sometimes when we want to talk to God, we've got to go inside. Um, Jesus said, confess, you know, or when we're praying, say, God, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who trespass against me. And, and to process our mistakes, to process, you know, our sins is an inward process. We go in, God, where am I failing? What am I doing? And am I doing okay? Am I doing what you called me to do? What, what did you expect from me today? And did I do it? That's an inward thing. It's a moment at 6 o'clock in the evening to stop and go, how am I doing today? Did I do what I was called to do? Did I do the things that God wanted me to do? Then at 9 o'clock, we pray another upward prayer just about God. And so three of these, nine, uh, 9, 3, and 9, we've been focused on praying upward. And we really didn't spend much time in that series. The last series, we spent most of our time on outward prayers, what it means to pray outward, how Jesus prayed outward um, for himself, for others, even for enemies. And then we focused on inward prayers. Some of the most famous inward prayers Jesus prayed, which would be he prayed prayers of lament. Um, we, prayed, we, we went through kind of his confession in John 17, um, what a confession looks like if you've never sinned. God, I did everything you sent me to do. You know, ours looks a little different, but uh, we talked about confession and lament. We talked about um, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an inward prayer. It's what do I have to be thankful for? It's searching deep in our hearts to, to find something to be grateful for. And then we talked about kind of the highest form of prayer, which is when we when we actually focus in on our lives becoming glorious to God, where we kind of, we shift from no longer being in the center, where, you know, God, I'm, I'm no longer praying about me. I want you to be glorified in my life. And But the thing we didn't spend much time on in the last series were these upward prayers. We kind of touched on them, um, and I kind of said I may do a series afterwards. And so we decided to do that, to, to focus 
on upward prayers, what that means. So we're calling this Design to Worship, and we're going to spend four weeks talking about worship, hopefully dispelling some misconceptions, and at the same time offering up uh, some tools and direction that we can apply to our lives. So we're going to spend this week talking about what worship is uh, and, uh, and how we engage in worship kind of as our design or our duty, maybe. Uh, and then for the next three weeks, we're going to cover worship as an act of love, worship as a, uh, as a weapon, and then worship as, as it creates community, as a creator of community. So I'm really excited to see where this study takes us. We kind of dove into it um, blind. Uh, I just felt uh, led to do this, so I don't have like a really clear plan. So we're just going to see where God takes us in this study. So today I'm going to start with what worship is, because this is a major misconception. And I think sometimes when we get it wrong, it reflects kind of poorly on the character of God. Um, because we tend to think of worship as something that God desires from us and that we, uh, and that we can offer or give to God uh, as if we're meeting some deep need that, that God has, which would communicate a few really creepy things about God if you think about it. First is that God is somehow incomplete in and of himself and that our, our worship can somehow fulfill that missing element, which is not correct. The second thing is, is if we get a misunderstanding about worship is that we would believe that somehow humans are big enough or grand enough that we're able to provide something that's missing in God. Again, not right. Uh, And third, and this is maybe the most disturbing, uh, is that if God somehow requires our worship to complete himself and and that we can actually fulfill that missing piece, then it... um, then it makes God a little weirdly desperate the way he requires our worship and, and commands our worship in the scripture. And so um, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, nobody likes that guy that constantly demands that we praise him. You know, that, that guy that constantly needs to be patted on the back. Um, and so we don't want to put that on God either. And so I think it's really important that we get this idea of worship right. Because if we, if we mess it up, um, it gives us some really strange pictures of God that I don't think are accurate to Scripture. But all this does beg the question, if God doesn't need our worship, and our worship adds nothing to God because he lacks nothing, he's complete in and of himself, then why is there such an emphasis on it, on worship in the Scripture? I mean, the Lord's Prayer, which we spent the last four weeks digging into, opens and closes with worship. And as we've been building it into our day, we've we put it in the middle as well. So why? If God, just as he is, needs nothing, and there's nothing we can add to God through our worship, then why does the scripture put such a premium on it? So that's the question we're going to hopefully answer today. And I think the answer is in the title of our series, Designed for Worship. And we're going to start right here at that point. This design. What are we designed for? We're going to look back at our kind of original design, and see what we can find. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, which reads like this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals 
that scurry along the ground. Excuse me. So this is what we call the cultural mandate. Uh, God creates humanity and he tells them to go forth and make culture. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply, govern and rule over the earth. This is what, what, we, what we call the standard cultural mandate where God gave humanity this call to, uh, to build and make culture. So there's a plan in the very beginning, something God called humans to do. We have this tendency to kind of think of Adam and Eve just aimlessly living in a garden, just kind of picking fruit naked, almost like they're just waiting for sin to happen, like they had no real aim or focus or design. It was just waiting until they messed up. And, and the Scripture tells us something different, that, the, that they were called to something. They were, they were given a mandate to do something uh, and uh, to build culture. But as we know, they did sin. They did fall. Adam and Eve chose to follow their own path rather than God's path. And in so doing, they invited all manner of evil into the world, into the story. God even describes to these first humans what it was going to look like. These, these, he, we classically call them the curses. You know, cursed is the ground for your sake. You're going to have to scrap to get what you need, and you're going to have to work hard and sweat. And they told them what was about to come into the picture because of their because of their actions. And some of the prophecies spoken into this moment from the very, very beginning kind of told this story of, of this incredible rescue mission that was going to have to happen. This kind of beautiful story of God redeeming his people. As he's, as he's talking to the serpent, he says, you know, uh, the, the seed of the woman will come and you'll bruise his his uh, heel, but he will crush your head. Like from the very beginning, we knew that this amazing uh, kind of rescue story was coming with the benefit of the fact that it's, it's not only beautiful, but it's a true story that happened. So God then chooses a people um, with whom he will bless the entire world. He calls a man named Abraham and, and chooses this people that he's going to use to reach out to the world. And even though this people is often unfaithful, God remains faithful through that people. And, and through them, he sends his son, the story we know so well, um, to come back and find a way back to that original design. But what I love about the way this rescue story ends is that if you turn to the very last chapter of the book, Revelation 22, and obviously when John wrote this, he had no idea that the canon of Scripture was ever even going to exist. He certainly had no idea that his book would be the last book. So he had no idea he was writing the last book of the Bible when he wrote this. At this point, there was no plan to make a canon. There was just guys writing letters to churches. And, and so he had no clue he was writing the last chapter of the book. But in that final chapter of the book, the last chapter of your Bible, John writes this, Then the angel showed me a river, with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, with fresh crops each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. So this is literally 
the very, the, the very first story of the Bible about these people, uh, and, and, and then this kind of final story, which is prophetically looking at the end, and it's remarkably how similar the language is here. I mean, we're looking at, at the tree of, in this final story, we're looking at the tree of life again, like the garden. We've got angels saying there's going to be no more curse again. And remember in that first story, they had to come and go, these are the curses that are about to happen because of what you did. And here in the very last story, there's no more curse. The tree of life is back. There's no more curse. This is all the same language from Genesis. And my favorite part is right here in this final part. It says, there, is there, uh, there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Notice who's reigning here. For the Lord God, singular, will shine on them, plural, and they, plural, will reign forever and ever. This is going back to that original design. When God originally made humans, he said, let's make man in our image and they will reign over all these things. We were created to do something. We were created with a mission and, and, a, and a job. And, and what John tells us is when it's all over, we're not, it's not like we just kind of drift off eternally into, into a big you know, worship service. It's, it's almost like we pick right back up where we left off. We pick right back up in that original design that God gave us. It's, it's, it's almost like he, he made us for something and sin broke that, and there's this huge kind of parentheses as Jesus sets on this incredible rescue story, and then when he, when he finishes it, we pick right back up where the brokenness happened. So look how similar it is here. In Genesis, he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it and reign it over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. You can see how the language being used here the, 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 the tree of life, the curses, and the, the cultural mandate are all back. Same language. And I find this greatly comforting that God's uh, plans were not really derailed. We're not living in plan B. Like we're not living in the, the contingency plan because of sin. That you cannot, you cannot break God's plan. God's original design for humanity is still completely intact. We know from the book of Revelation here that the destiny of the human race is to fulfill that original intent. And we will do it. But my favorite part is the way that John describes this original design. He says we'll be reunited with the tree of life. We'll be uh, ruling and reigning again like we were called to do in Genesis. And John calls us back to, to our absolute origin for eternity, and he says this, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. So as we return to our original design, as, as God kind of restores everything back to the way it was created to be, no more curse, redeemed from the curse. We're allowed access to the tree of life again. The, the major piece of that redemptive story is that we will worship God again and the Lamb. And of course, this kind of ignites in the human imagination uh, this picture of, of our relationship to God through eternity is kind of being this 
like eternal worship service where we're going to stand in a crowd, you know, with our hands up and sing for eternity. And some of us get real uncomfortable with that. <laughs> we're like 30 minutes, it feels long, honestly. And eternity, you know... <laughs> And this is why I feel like any discussion of worship has to start with original design. And our eventual design. Honestly, this is, our, this is not just what we were made for in the beginning, but what we know we're going to return to. Because whatever true worship is, it's wrapped up in these two stories. We were created in a garden as part of a hierarchy. When the human story of redemption runs its course, we'll finally be back to that proper hierarchy with God on the throne and his people falling joyfully in submission to God as, as, as we human beings rule and reign over the earth as a reflection of the image of God. So as we look at what we're created for and, and, uh, and what we will one day return to, we find that worship is more than an alignment than a song. It's, it's, it's more of an alignment of our hearts than it is something we do with our voices. This is why the Old Testament word for worship is this. It's shakah, which means to bow down, to crouch, to fall down flat, to do reverence, to make, to stoop, to worship. Notice it doesn't say anything about singing or even saying anything to God or how awesome he is. The New Testament actually mirrors this reality. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo, which is where we get the word prostrate from. It means to fawn or to crouch. That is literally or figuratively to prostrate oneself in homage to worship. Worship is acknowledging and accepting our proper place in the scheme of creation, which is below God. But the beauty of this alignment is that both in Genesis and Revelation, God's people stand as the pinnacle of creation literally reigning lovingly over the creation that God made as image bearers of God. And this is, this is truly the essence of, of human dignity. The most elevated picture of humanity is humanity properly submitted to God. If you remove God from the picture, man suddenly becomes this, this person who's about three seconds ahead of everything else in the evolutionary scheme of things, but really just one of the creature's wallowing around on the blue marble. Only when we're properly submitted to God, only when God is on the throne, does humanity have this this God-given dignity of of ruling and reigning over the creation of God. Humanity is elevated only through submission, strength through weakness. When When we fall in submission and worship to God, that is when we when we suddenly become those who rule and reign. This is why the sin in the garden was so damaging, because it wasn't that the fruit was somehow magical and and something bizarre happened the second they ate it. It was that they chose to put something else on the throne other than God. They chose to call the shots. Eating that forbidden fruit became this act of anti-worship. Or maybe it became an act of worshiping a false god the God of self. So we know that we're created to worship. And the entire redemptive story is, is this story of getting back to that created nature of worship. 
Returning back to the place where we live in worship, in submission again. But what about everything between Genesis and Revelation? What about everything in the mess of the story that that falls between those two? What about where we live right now, lamenting over what was lost in sin, waiting for final redemption? What about right here and right now? What does worship look like in between the first chapter and the last chapter? Well, that is what this series is about. And more than just recognizing that we've been created to live in submission to God as we kind of fulfill this cultural mandate from Genesis, because we live in the brokenness between. Our job is to to try and help bring about the redemption that we know is going to happen, to join God in this work of redeeming all things as we live in the middle. And this is where the idea of song comes into play, the idea of of what we consider worship comes into into play. And now, quick disclaimer, I do not pretend to understand this fully. It's it's over my head, but I believe it with all my heart. And so on those grounds, I want to share this. And it's that words have creative power. Words have creative power. We know that, that through his word, God spoke the universe into existence. He spoke a promise to Abraham, and and that word was so binding that he says he will never leave those people. He brings Jesus through that story because he spoke a promise. The Bible over and over again emphasizes the absolute power of God's word. And along comes Jesus in John's gospel, and and he's presented as the the word of God, this, this amazing creative power. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is is presented to us in the book of John as that creative power of the Word. And then this really strange twist kind of comes in where after thousands of years of emphasis on God's Word, Jesus comes along and says, I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, And that that Greek word for say is to speak out loud. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe that it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. It's as if Jesus is saying this combination of faith and speaking, this combination of of believing and, and words, gives us some access to this creative power of the universe. Words have a creative power. And the weight of this is really intense. Jesus took it very seriously. As the rabbis were, uh, in a very, very Jewish way, uh, being really concerned about, about ceremonial cleanliness, and they were coming to, to Jesus and going, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands as often as we do? You know, you don't want to touch anything or take in anything unclean. Jesus turns it to, and, and, and uses it as a teaching moment about the power of words. And he says this, I tell you this, you... You must give an account on Judgment Day of every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. I don't know about you, but this is absolutely terrifying to me. This is one of the scariest. I I speak a lot of idle words. I just do. It's kind of ironic talking about this today because yesterday we had lunch with Mike and Edie and, and we had no trouble filling like three, three and a half hours with just talk. 
It was never a quiet moment. And we went straight from there to do a bid uh, for my, with my son that my son's going to do um, with some old friends. And we went because we hadn't seen those friends in forever. And I think we stood there and talked for four hours. You know, all idle words. No idea what we even talked about. The drive time didn't have a quiet moment in it. We talked to each other for the 45 minutes out there and back. If you've ever had a lengthy conversation with me, you know that, that if I'm going to be judged on every idle word I speak, that will be at least the first half of eternity. Like, it will take time. My kids used to, <laughs> used to play this game with me where when we were hanging out at a party or whatever and I was standing there kind of with a friend, they would, they would come up and, and, of course, all the other ones were standing watching because they thought it was fun. And one of them would come up and ask me like a philosophical question. And once I dove into the answer, they would slip out and see how long this person that was stuck with me had to listen to me lecture them on, while they stand across the room and laugh that this person is like, what? I didn't even ask the question. Why are you talking at me? You know, one year for Father's Day, Esther had the kids um, do this little kind of tribute book where it had a bunch of questions and the kids each went through and answered the questions about me, you know. One of the questions was, what is something your dad says often? And Matthew goes, blah, 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 philosophy, Jesus. (laughs) I say a lot of words. So when Jesus says that I will one day be judged on every idle word, I wear this very heavily. Words create reality. I mean, just think about Facebook right now. All words. And look at the horrible reality those words are creating. You just go in and you, you can, I, I could go on right now, type some words, and from that moment on, I would have some enemies and I would have some allies. All with words. Our world is falling apart over words. I get weirdly emotional every time I do a wedding. Because all we do is stand up in front of God and people and say some words. And then the next week, if those people change their mind, they've got to split up all their crap because I said some words. Like reality changed because we spoke some words. Words have a crazy amount of power. So let's go back to our original track here. If we know that we're created to live in a particular kind of hierarchical order where God is on the throne and we live in this posture of worship, Yielding to God's will for us. But at the same time, we're actively reigning and living and moving in the way He created us to be. Reflecting our loving relationship with God to the created order beneath us. If we truly believe that that's what we're created for, and we believe that this is also the redemptive timeline that we're a part of, that we're moving toward, and we Know that we're stuck in the middle of these two realities. And our job is to help that future reality come to pass. And I submit that one of the ways we do that is with our words. We declare, often with song, the world we want to create. We, we declare with our, world, with our words the world we want to see happen. The world we know is going to happen. You've heard me say several times that the ancient rabbis believed that the Torah was the way God speaks to humans 
And the book of Psalms is the way that God wants humans to speak back to Him. Well, the Psalms are full of this. A third, one third of them are laments. People who are angry with God. People who are frustrated and disappointed with, with life and with God. And they take all that to God. But the vast majority of the, the laments in Scripture have this magic word in them. But. When we studied this last summer, we called it finding your butt. Where, where, where you, you, you voice all of your pain and anger and, 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 and hurt and frustration to God. And then there's this turning point in these psalms that goes, but I know you're still faithful. I, and, and they start to speak. I know you're going to do good for Zion. I know that you will bless your people, Israel. And they, they speak into existence out of this place of pain, the world they want to see. And they sang this and, and, they, and they chanted this and they prayed this over and over and over again. God, I'm hurting, but I know you're going to do good. They, they, they look forward to the world. They know God is creating. We declare with our words the reality that we know to be real, but we just can't see it yet. We were made for a proper alignment. We'll spend, we'll spend eternity in that alignment. We'll spend eternity in that proper order. The thing I love about when we study worship is, especially when we're talking about how we're designed for worship and, and how, we, how we know that we will spend eternity in, in worship, is that if this is part of the human heart, if this is part of something we were designed for, we should see it everywhere, right? If it's what we were made for, we should see worship happening all around us. Even involuntary worship. And I think we do. I mean, think about, think about romantic love in our culture. Disney love. I call it Disney love. We write songs about it. We read beautiful sonnets about it. We make movies about it. And everyone knows that emotional love only goes so far. Like every single one of us knows that eventually love is something you commit to and it's an action that you do over and over and over again, whether you feel it or not. But by God, when we sit down to a good romantic comedy and these two people were obviously made for each other, we get so emotionally engaged in it. We pour ourselves into this stuff because we love love. And, and, and what's funny is when... We're part of it. We want to talk about it. We want to sing about it. We want to throw ourselves fully into it, almost like we were made to talk about this thing that we enjoy. And what about sports? I mean, think about the bitterness of, of sports rivalries. People that you probably wouldn't respect if you knew them for 10 minutes. And they sit in our, in our minds like these idols. We can even call them that. My God is better than your God. Go, God. You know, we don't call it that, but that's what we're doing. We lay our money on the altar and we scream with our congregation to declare that our God reigns. Politics. We declare our cause to be the way of righteousness and we demand strict adherence to the platform. And we pin all of our hopes on our God defeating the false gods. And man, do we love to sing the praises of our God. And take your pick. Money, 
food, power, individualism, freedom, safety. We decide that these things are the things that I will make sacrifice for. These are the things that I will give myself to. This is worth bowing down to. This is worthy of of my song, my worship. It's just part of who we are. She is so beautiful. You meet somebody beautiful and you want to tell everybody about it. You can't help but talk about it. It just comes so naturally. This burger is so good. Something about enjoying something. You have to declare it. You have to say it. Go team! Four more years. <laughs> Worship is the most natural thing in the world. We do it without even realizing we're doing it. In fact, have you ever read, you know, about ancient ancient religions and and just the emphasis on worshiping idols in the scripture and and the way the pagan you know religions used to worship so many gods and and we feel more sophisticated than that. We're like, you know, how crazy must it be that they? One of the prophets even makes fun of it. You go down, you cut down a tree, you use half of it for firewood, and then you take the other half and you make an idol and you bow down and worship it like it made you, you know. And we, and the, the prophet is making fun of, how could the tree that you just made make you? Like, and we do that. We kind of make fun of these ancient religions that were so superstitious. We're so sophisticated now. We would never fall for all that superstition. I think the biggest difference between us and them is they were more honest with their worship. We have a thousand false gods, but we don't recognize them because we don't name them Baal and Ra. We name them political party and personal safety. We think we're sophisticated, but I think we're just less authentic. No matter where you look, you find humans worshiping as naturally as we breathe. Which means right here, stuck right here, somewhere between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. It's not about learning to worship. It's not about becoming a worshiper. You are a worshiper. You know how to worship. We do it as naturally as we breathe. Being stuck in the middle is about learning who to worship, not how to worship. It's about aiming our worship where we're supposed to aim it. It's about directing this thing that we do so naturally back into the created order where it's supposed to be. Learning to worship the one true God at the expense of all rival gods. So how do we respond to this? I started out by saying that a misunderstanding of worship can make God seem kind of creepy. For, for demanding our worship, you know, how weird is it for somebody to go, I really need you to tell me how awesome I am. Like God somehow is so full of himself that he needs us to reinforce it. But this could not be farther from the truth. God does not need us to worship him. He doesn't get an ego boost from our worship. The truth is God created us and he knows what we were designed for. God doesn't need us to worship him, but he knows if we don't, we will bow down to a thousand false gods. We will throw ourselves full bore into something that cannot satisfy us. Something that will let us down. Something that will hurt us. 
He knows that, that, that if, if, if we don't rightly align our worship, we'll give, it to a, we'll give it to a false god always. God commands us to worship him, not because he needs it, but because we need it. God is not in any way needy, but we are. We're very needy. We need to worship. And if we don't worship God, we'll worship something that can never meet our needs, can never fulfill us. So here's what I'd love to do this week. If you're still praying the daily offices with us at at 9, noon, 3, 6, and 9, I'd like you to take those upward prayers, those moments at 9, 3, and Nine, those moments where we're talking about God. And this week, we're going to continue this for, the, for, the, for this series that we, we've been shaping our prayer life over the last series, and, and we're going to continue to do that. For this week, I would love us to see, to, to begin to pray in a way that, that brings things into existence that aren't there yet. Things, I'm not saying, God... I love you because you're going to give me a Cadillac. That's not what I'm saying. That's, that's the wrong kind of upward prayer. I'm talking about the things we know God wants to do. Like, God, I, I am, you are so awesome. I know you're going to bring a day when there is no injustice. Because we know that's coming. We know that's, that's, the, that's the, the end game. So what if we started to speak that into existence now? We started to pray that, thank you, God, for making a world that will one day know no injustice. In our head, it feels like a pipe dream. How is, how is that ever going to happen? We know Jesus is going to redeem this broken world, which includes ending racism and bigotry and classism and all the things. And even though right now we can't see a path to that, we know it's going to happen. So we say it. We thank God for this future that he's going to give us. Thank you, God, that you're going to end poverty that you're big enough to do that, that you're amazing enough to one day end poverty and injustice. Thank you, God, that you're going to put an end to freaking cancer and rejoice in that. Thank you, God, that that day is coming. Thank you, God, that the day is coming when you will shine like a light to the nations. No more division. And even if we don't believe those things, even if our heart doesn't, even if we're in a lament psalm and we're like, God, this is falling apart and that is falling apart and, and I'm angry about this and I'm hurt over that, but, but, I know there's coming a day when the tree of life will, will bring healing to the nations and we won't even need light because you are going to shine so bright. Not feeling it today, but I know it's going to be there. So we live like Revelation 22 is real. We say it with our mouths. Thank you, God, that that day is coming. So I want to close today with the Lord's Prayer. I want to pray it together before we take communion and and uh, pay particular uh, attention to those, uh, those opening and closing words. And, and just, just imagine Revelation 22 as we pray that. Just, just speaking into existence together out loud 
this future that we know is going to happen. So pray with me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.